You are listening to OPN Ask an Angel podcast, brought to you by the Supporters Fund, powered by OPN. Listen to the fireside chat with top angel investors, learn from an angel, and grow your company. Awesome. Well, welcome, everybody. Today, we are speaking with John. And if John, I'm going to say your name, last name, but I want to make sure I don't say it wrong. Is it Ober Osler? Holzler. Holzer. Head Woodsman in German. Yes, Oberholzer. Oberholzer. Okay, awesome. Well, we don't want to mess that up, especially when we're sound biting. That won't sound very good. So, uh, but everybody, welcome. We are at uh, with OPN, and today we're going to be diving right into and learning a lot more about angel investing yet again. And John's going to walk us through that. But John, why don't you give us an idea, a little bit about yourself, some background, just to kind of shape this conversation today? Sure. Uh, I'm a, a tech uh, investor and employee out of out of uh, the Waterloo area, Waterloo grad, and uh, have been involved in angel investing for technically maybe seven or eight years, but if, but probably a little longer than that when you look at what my, some of my first investments uh, were back in back in the '90s when I kind of got into the the industry. Awesome, and I guess what is the what's the reason you decided to get into angel investing? What was the traction? What drove you into it? Well, if you go back to my early investments, uh, what really got me into startup and and startup like companies is uh, the job that I had out of out of university. So I, I worked at a company called Waterloo Maple as a co-op for several years. Uh, during the time I was a co-op, I wasn't allowed to own shares because you had to be an employee to own shares at that time. So the minute I became a full-time employee, I jumped in there and and bought whatever shares I could. Technically, not an angel investment in the normal sense, um, and they weren't a startup, and they'd been around for a few years and had maybe 25, 30 people at that time. Uh, but the the idea of I want to be a, a part a partner in whatever it is that I'm spending my time on was a real idea then. A little later on, I went to uh, RIM where I didn't need to purchase any shares because you got options at that time. That was a big thing in the late 90s. I spent 10 years there, uh, 10 very successful years, and then took took a little break, moved on to a company called DeGiro. And that was where you'd probably have my very first real t- uh, angel investment uh, in in around 2009. So I started there as an employee, was getting some shares as an employee, getting paid out that way because we were re- really three or four people at that point. Um, and from there, actually had just, we had, we, that was great, um, getting paid in shares, but they had to have cash to pay the other part of my compensation and we had to hire other people, so they needed to do some raises. So that's when I kind of got engaged in, in it uh, a little more deeply. Had a few years then without making any new angel investments, but moved into GTAN um, in, I don't know, 2011 or so as the result of, an, of another round of investment in DeGiro where you needed to be uh, a member of an angel group in order to get matching government funding or whatever the story was at the time. So I magically became an angel investor at that point. And from there, started to invest in a lot of more uh, local startups. Oh, that's awesome. And is there, while you were going through this process, was there you obviously started earlier on by doing this through employment. Then it became a bigger piece. You started to enjoy it, really wanted to have more of a stake in what you were working in, but then obviously spreading this around. What was the real driving force behind it? Did it was it because having an ownership stake or was it something else? Initially, it was, it was the ownership stake, but as you get on in your career, you find that you, you realize that you're not going to be able to do everything. Um, and, and I enjoy deep commitments at, at the places I worked at. Um, you know, I'm not somebody who just is in and out within a year or whatnot. So in order to kind of have a broader 
uh, range of experiences. Um, this angel investing for me is a way to is a way to accomplish that. Uh, I'm involved in a lot of tech companies, directly or indirectly, in ways that I couldn't be if I was simply an employee. So for, for me, that was that was a real uh, motivation to, to to get more deeply involved. And, and there's there's an element once you get a certain place in your career of setting up the next generation for. Of, of startups and businesses. And if, if someone hadn't done what I'm doing now back in the 80s, the companies that I started with in the 90s wouldn't have existed. Um, so there, there is that element of it too. And for me, while I, while I have a relatively broad um, within Canada of geography that I would invest in, a lot of them do flow out of the local community here in Waterloo. No, that's great. And being a, a tech guy myself as well, um, I looked at it pretty much the same way when I was working in early stage companies, uh, bringing them into Loblaws, even though they may not have really wanted me to, but I got so much traction from it. I never at the time could invest, but man, as soon as I got out, that's all I could think about was how do I actually help more and invest in some of these companies? Because from a grassroots standpoint, it not only creates jobs, but it drives a lot of the industries and you get to learn a lot more. And how else can you learn if you're not just in depth with all of them? So that's pretty cool that uh, you're doing that. I find a lot of tech guys kind of have their way of trying to get in beside the tech and figure out how they can grow and learn and add extra value to them. So that's awesome. So in that kind of last, uh, in that 10 years that you've been kind of shifting around, investing and doing that, what's the favorite part that you have? What really makes this work for you? I enjoy interacting with the entrepreneurs. Um, often pre-investment is, is when you spend the most time with them for, for better or for worse. Sometimes they're just not as interested after they have your money. Um, but, uh, and sometimes they're just growing and moving and, and, but, uh, having been involved with the, with the local angel group for, again, the better part of eight or nine years, uh, and spending time working in the selection process for the, for the, uh, companies that come forward. I, I really enjoy that. Some of the really, really early stage and, and helping them shape their idea a little bit and shape the way that they, they talk about it to, to investors. That is something that I, I really enjoy. And, and as you mentioned, the, the learning aspect of just new, um, new technologies, new areas of technology that you don't get into if you're, if you're focused on one uh, company, the one, you're, the one you're at. A lot of tech people, you can get focused on that one thing because, and, and very deeply because that's your nine to five job. And you don't get exposed to other things that are going on uh, in the marketplace uh, and in technology without kind of seeking it out. <clears throat> and by uh, <clears throat> working with the startups, you really do get to see, you get to see the future in a certain way, right? Uh, no, I really, I really like the idea that you, you're, you're working with them at early stage, really early on, helping them shift and shape those ideas and then probably go to market within a year or whatever that time period is. A lot of people don't really find that part the best uh, to get into because it's the hardest part. You're really spending a lot of time with the entrepreneur to figure out how to shape them through their business, their modeling, uh, their financial look, uh, outward or forward looking uh, documents, all these things are a lot tougher for someone to grasp. Big fan of that as well, but I, I think that it really does help shape that entrepreneur going forward. But then when they start that next company, they're going to come to you for that too, right? So you really are getting a really advanced, um, uh, structure with these early stage guys and, and women that are launching companies. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, is there a, a, is there a number of companies that you look at investing in per year? Do you do it more as filling gaps in a portfolio? What kind of uh, is your structure on when you look at investments? The number of companies, there, there is some variation. It's not like I set out at the beginning of the year to say, 
I want to invest in only this much, or I'm only going to put this much capital forward. Um, it tends to work out that it's somewhere between zero and in my case, as many as four, um, usually less than that, well, maybe one or two uh, new companies a year. And, and as, as your portfolio builds over the years, that number doesn't necessarily go up, it goes down because you end up making a lot of follow-on investments to your existing companies. So with, with a lot of angels, um, where they are in their portfolio is going to depend on how many new companies they're actually going to be seriously looking at. So in that, and you mentioned that, that you have follow-on. So is there a percentage that you look at inside of all of your investments? You set aside 30% or again, this is just, I've got a bucket of money and I'm just going to figure out how I do it each year. And if some go into reinvestments versus new, then that's what I do. The, the latter. It's, it's really opportunistic and you don't necessarily go in saying, I'm going to reserve three times my initial investment in this company because the way I t tend to invest is with other angels through angel groups. So you have other capital along with you in that round. I, I typically avoid um, being the loan investor because I don't have enough capital to, to do that, right? And, and you, you need to understand as you get into these companies that both as, as the entrepreneur and as the investor, that they're going to need more capital. In fact, the successful ones almost always will need more capital. Um, so you, you need you need you do need to factor that into your to your investment style. Um, and, and also, uh, you don't know necessarily which follow-on investments are going to be because the company is doing very well, and you, you know the, the valuation may have gone up greatly, and you may decide not to participate in that in that deal because. It's, it's not as an attractive valuation. Other, other times, the company's prospects may be excellent, but because of a cash crunch, you, you need to get in there as a defensive mechanism just to defend the rest of your investment. No, that's smart. You, you really do have to kind of play it by ear because some companies will be doing well and you might see that it's at 10 million, but they're closing the round. They don't really need your money. So you can shift over to the ones that are a little bit more uh, desirable in the sense that maybe they haven't got to the 10 million yet, but they need that next round to get it closed. And sometimes that uh, follow on investment you make actually probably will help them because it helps other investors come on too, right? It, it, it really de-risks it by seeing that you've come into multiple rounds and they believe that if you believe in this herd mentality as well, if John's in twice and he's coming in again, I better follow suit and jump back into that as well. And that definitely happens at times. Other times, when I, even when I'm not investing, I'll still give the other investors my honest opinion of where things are at and how the entrepreneur is to work with. So it's important for the entrepreneurs to, to um, communicate well with, with their investors because even if that, that investor is not going to give you more money in a future round, they will know other investors who they can either encourage to give you money or encourage not to give you money. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, is there any verticals right now that you've been really focused on in the last little bit because of COVID, but just in general that you really like? I tend to avoid the hot sectors like that. So, I mean, you know, if you look back over the last five years, you've had things like you know, driverless cars, cannabis, um, blockchain, you know, and, and some of these things come up as big, hot areas. And a lot of the, it's a lot of it is hot garbage. Um, the companies that come out because it's just, um, they hear there might be money in this and let's all run into this. So I, I tend to shy away from some of that stuff just because it doesn't necessarily turn out that well, right? It gets a lot of people excited, but you, you really have to, when, when there's a lot of companies, especially going into those spaces, now you, now you have the risk of selecting the right company because when many of those companies are looking for, for money, they're not all going to survive. And now you've just, you may have, you may have had the right sector, but you picked 
you know, two or three of the wrong companies uh, and you've messed up that way. It, it, with me, it's, it's less about the vertical itself. It's, it, um, you, you do tend to gravitate to things you understand to a certain extent. So certain types of technology, uh, communications, video, uh, things like that in my case, because I have that background, those are things that I might uh, <clears throat> look at a little more seriously or be of more assistance to my fellow angel investors as they explore those, those opportunities. Having said that, I, you don't necessarily limit um, your vertical. Sometimes I've had things that are kind of off the wall that I've invested in, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, um, <clears throat> just because it was just because it was an interesting new thing, and I wanted to have some exposure to that new industry. Some of that you can get by just analyzing the companies and seeing different business models and the way things are. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you need to uh, you actually jump in and see how it how it unfolds. Uh, if there's if there's any it's, it's, for me, it's less of a question of the type of vertical. It's, it's sometimes the type of business and the type of market. So I tend to be more interested in B2B plays rather than B2C plays. Or if there, or if there is an, an ultimate consumer uh, angle, it has to be driven by somebody else, um, not, not by the entrepreneur. Because, I, I, again, some of these become moonshots. Oh, everyone is going to have one of these things that I have. Well, they're probably not. That's probably – that's a very low probability bet. Um, if, if it's a B2B play where I can understand why a business would save money on this or it would help them with their sales or whatever, I know there will be a market for it. You don't have to worry, worry about developing the market because the need for it within that industry will be obvious. The, the upside may not be as massive at first, um, although you, even then you can find that once you develop that technology for one market, you can adapt it for something else. Where some of the B2C plays or a consumer product play or a mass application of some sort that's a, that's a really you've really got to believe in the entrepreneur and their connections in order for that type of thing to to be appealing because usually they end up sputtering out in my experience so you're really trying to figure out is you know if it's when they're in this early stage is is there adoption and there's a possibility of broader adoption in a business sense that if this can get picked up and utilized in Toronto, then it should be able to do the same thing in New York, same thing in Madrid, wherever that might be. So you kind of have to look at a broader view of where this potentially can go in order for you to really want to dive into this and say, you know what? Okay. I get where you're coming from and I can see it going here. So let's dive in and really start to explore this more because there's a bigger opportunity here. Yeah. And sometimes that may be location. Sometimes it may be by industry, but there has to be enough of an initial industry where I can say, yes, it makes perfect sense that somebody in this business would want this product because it helps them in an obvious way. And it's, it's not merely a fashion thing, which is some of the B2C stuff where it could be, it, maybe it'll take off, but maybe it won't. And it can often take a lot of money in the marketing of it. And again, back to the verticals, a lot of times, I, you know, I'm not interested in pure marketing plays. I'm not interested in branding plays. That, that's just not my thing. Some investors love that. Um, I don't. I'm more into, the, into something that's more interesting technologically and has some, again, obvious benefit and obvious use. Is there any, while you're going through this process, figuring out that it's got some uh, larger, broader markets, when you're starting to jump into the DD side and going into due diligence, is there any materials or things that you have to really see before you'll make any sort of commitment? There's a standard package of things and depending on the angel group you're dealing with, they'll, they'll give you a whole list. It might be two or three pages of stuff. Um, anything from basic 
corporate information? Have you got your, have you, are you incorporated? Basic, basic things. Have you got basic employment agreements with your key people? Have you got a basic understanding of what the share structure really is versus what you think it might be with your co-founders? Um, if those things aren't dealt with and clear, and, and then forget it. I mean, there's, there's no point getting involved in it. Um, yes, you need business plans and those sorts of things, but anyone who's been in these industries knows a lot of those business plans, it's less about the plan because the plan will be garbage within you know, 30 days, six months, whatever, because things change. It's more the thought process that, that you went into in developing the plan in the first place. So it's the process of creating the plan that, that demonstrates to an investor, whether you're a serious person or whether, you know, you have um, weaknesses in certain areas of your, your team or, your, or yourself as a CEO or a founder. Uh, some of that can come out in those sorts of documents, right, where, where you're not even thinking about some basic um, <clears throat> areas of the business, but I, most people wouldn't obsess on that stuff. Um, those, are, those are things that you can easily get back and forth in, in, with, with questioning, but, but the, any, anything to do with, with existing finance, if you have other debt, if you have th those kind of low-level corporate things, if you don't have that stuff, forget it, right? Because now you're just taking a massive risk. The other way I, I reduce risk there with, with um, the due diligence process is again, by working through angel groups and, and other investors, right? Because I have certain areas of expertise. I have certain areas where I know nothing. I can read a, a financial statement, but that's not my area of interest and it's not my area of experience. So I know that there will be other people in the group who may have those areas that they're interested in. I can look in IP in a fairly detailed way because I have that kind of background. I can look at the tech in a certain way because I have that kind of a background and I can provide great assistance to my fellow angels in, in looking at those areas. So for me, it's, it's less about you know, everything in the due diligence room. I don't need to necessarily look at everything in the due diligence room before writing a check. Um, but it kind of needs to be there. Yep. To, you know. No, that makes sense. Well, it, you're crossing off uh, all your T's and dotting your I's just to make sure that all the information's there. So if you do need it, you can go through it. But the things that matter to you the most are going to be around probably uh, the model, the, the user, or the, sorry, the CEO and all those other pieces, other attributes. Um, is there a timeline that you look for when you're making an investment? Like you want to close this off relatively quickly uh, or you kind of just go with the flow. Is there something people look forward to? I would have, I avoid things that are real quick. Like, and I mean, you make those mistakes early on when you're investing sometimes, Oh, you got to get in now. Oh, it's a minimum of 50,000. Oh, it's no. You know, I, I, again, I've learned those lessons in some cases the hard way. Um, fortunately not too many cases the hard way, but, but you, 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 the, the idea for 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 an entrepreneur, you do not push too hard on the investor. So, so that means you need to be as an as an entrepreneur, you need to be way ahead of the game. You cannot go a, a month or two before you think you need the money or before you're going to run out of money, and ask for money because the odds of everything coming together aren't that high. The reality is, as me is an angel investor, I don't need to write you a check ever, right? And it's not like I, that I have some power over you. You don't need to have me as an investor either. But the reality is, you still need money. I don't need something to invest in as an angel. That's different than say a VC in some cases where that's their business. They're going to have to put money into businesses over time because otherwise the VCs don't make money because that's how they make money. They get money from people. As an angel, it's a completely different thing. So if, if I'm completely put off by um, the, the, the speed at which you want to do something, you know, that may just kill the deal right there. I understand, again, having been on the other side of it, that there are times when you need to close more quickly. But the way you, you make that happen is by having your due diligence material ready, by having your pitch done up front, and by you know, uh, communicating well with, with the potential investors and not waiting until the last minute because you're really living dangerously when you do that. I, it, it usually takes at least 
after a major pitch, it would take at least a month or two before everything closes. Especially, especially if it is your first investment and you don't have, you have never gone through a shareholder agreement, those sorts of things. We didn't really talk about that in the due diligence portion, but um, those are things, especially for the first time. If you have not done those before, um, sometimes the the speed of the thing is now back on the entrepreneur because they don't know what to do because they've never even considered these things before, and they've got potential investors throwing all these clauses at them in in different terms. And that can slow things down. So know what, know kind of what you're looking for up front. And that's hard for, for an entrepreneur because you, you have to be focused on your business core business first, but you're going to be needy raising money all along. So the more you can kind of um, learn about different aspects of financing before you need to know them, the better off you'll be when you're in that, in that situation. So yeah, it, it, several months always. And, and if you're actually haven't even engaged in angel group yet, for instance, you've got to add another couple months to that. So you, you want, you need to be looking six to nine months probably before you need the money and you may need to need it before you know precisely what you need the money for or precisely when you're going to need the money or, or and how much money, right? Because all that is going to be negotiable and changeable um, based on what's going on in your business and based on the investors that you actually are able to get interest from. Yeah, that's uh, really, um, I think you've really kind of put this together in a nice little package, but you're right. There are so many moving parts. Not only is the entrepreneur having to learn and figure out how to run their business, they also got to figure out how investing works. What are the types of terms? What are the documents? And all of those things all have to coincide with, I got to be here in a year. And in order for me to get here, I'm going to need a year to figure out how to go through all these pieces, raise some coin. And if it takes me a year, man, I almost should start raising money before I even started to really get on the street and sell my product. And it, it is crazy how much time it takes to do all of that. But well said, I think you kind of nicely layered that out. So inside of this, the DD, you've got this business, you're structured, it's ready to go. Uh, you start to dive in, you've gone through all the paperwork, everything's kind of in that D, uh, Dropbox folder, you're going through it all. What are the other characteristics that you look for in a deal that really stand out for you? Uh, is it team? Is it the CEO? Is it the product? What things do you really want someone to focus in on when they're coming to John saying, John, I want you to invest in me and they've got to have these things lined up? The CEO and the team are definitely major areas of concern interest in, in considering any investment uh, beyond the normal due diligence materials in some ways is something you can't necessarily if you're already at that stage there's nothing you can do about it you are who you are um, but knowing who you are and knowing where your weaknesses are is, is very important because the reality is any entrepreneur who comes in, in front of any inve investor is going to is going to have certain blind spots the team is going to have blind spots and you need to have some ideas to what those blind spots are so that a you, you can have the humility to ask for help from whoever the angel investors are you um, far too often i find particularly amongst technical founders and you get a lot of that here in waterloo where it's a bunch of people who are highly technical they have no one who has any concept of accounting or sales or any of those things but they don't seem to understand that they need to know those things right if, if, if you know that you need to know that any kind of team you know, can work, right? But, but, and on the other side of the, of the equation, if you're weak technically, but you have an idea and you're a go-getter and you want to start a business, you'd better know that, uh, that you don't know certain things about tech and you need to be able to communicate that in a way that um, tells the investor that you're aware of that, 
rather than letting the investor figure that out for themselves, right? You don't you don't spend your time when you're pitching to an investor saying, here's all the, you know, I have 10 minutes with you. Uh, here's nine minutes of all the bad things about my company. Um, will you invest in me? But But you better spend a minute or two of that answering the questions preemptively with your own narrative about the things that I'm probably going to ask um, when I'm actually going through the investment process. So if you can kind of seed that and, and um, know what your weaknesses are and be able to kind of, sh again, shape that conversation, you're going to be in a better position than if you pretend these things aren't existing or hoping that I'm not going to notice, uh, I probably will notice. And if I think that either A, you're playing me and you just, you have this big hole and you're not telling me, or that you just you don't even understand that you're in this hole, that makes it far less attractive uh, to to invest in you. So you're you're pretty much saying just to open up Pandora's box, make sure you're sharing a little bit of everything. Uh, there are weaknesses. It's not a bad thing to share the weakness that you have, uh, but allow everybody else to make their own decision from that. Versus when everything hits the fan and now you're relinquishing information that you're not good at finance or you're not good at technical side or you have no sales you thought you would and now you're just a platform that no one's visiting because you didn't look at all aspects of the business yeah yeah and and again even the process of going in through and determining those weaknesses is going to help you shape the narrative right and, and it may help you shape the questions that you have or the type of it's, it's much better if you can say uh here's an area where we're weak in john do you know anyone or do any of you investors if you could help us in this area that would be great Okay, because that that is an is an angel investor makes me feel good, makes me feel smart. Okay, and, and I mean I'm not, I'm not saying you butter the, all the investors up all the time because we can see through some of that too, but it makes me see oh I can add value here. I can add value to this person by introducing them to somebody else, or here's somebody I know who's currently not employed in this area, but they've they've have this expertise. I can help bring them in, you know, short term, part time, whatever, to help you through this problem, so you can. Uh, kind of rocket the business forward once you have some of these things taken care of. No, I love that. The the weakness, as you mentioned, it kind of helps you build that narrative. I, I love that line, but I also like that when you shifted that to sharing what that one weakness is, is that it allows for other people to find ways to help. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to um, not show any cracks until the cracks become too big and then it's irreversible. And then you've kind of got yourself into a bad position, but uh, showing these cracks, I think they're a good thing. Um, and what we try to do with some of uh, the startups when they're pitching is we always try to steer the, the pitch deck by leaving one or two doors open in the pitch deck for questions, because then those allow you to speak to them and be able to share more about where you can use help. And then the investors on the outside who are just interested in your company, they now have a reason to reach out to you because you're compelled to want to help somebody if you open a door for that help to occur. And if you try to hide it, then no one will ever want to have an interest. So you yeah. kind of almost want to have those spots and those cracks because then people will say, hey, I know this person that can help you with this. And now you're going to feel more comfortable that people have an interest in what you're trying to achieve because they find a way in. And, and again, those of us who've gone through this um, in from a startup perspective, okay, and, and not every, not all angel investors have. Some are some are strictly from finance or this or whatever other area, and they're perfectly valuable angel investors, and it can be extremely valuable, especially if you're a tech person and don't have that background. But for those of us who who, who have lived through that I, I, and have seen either ourselves or our founders go through hassle after hassle after hassle, they, they we know how hard it can be, 
right? And we know that there's not going to be one hurdle, there's going to be 50 hurdles. And if you actually understood all those hurdles, you probably wouldn't do this in the first place because you'd realize how hard it is. But the fact that you can even identify the first few hurdles, okay, is again, a part of the resilience that you need to have as an entrepreneur, because we know you're going to run into these problems. And if you're just totally oblivious to it, and not willing to consider the weaknesses that are there, then again, that tells you something about that entrepreneur. And, and as an investor, I, if, I, if I don't have confidence that this person will be able to deal with this, whatever, whatever the hurdles are that are going to come up and the ones that none of us know about, well, why am I going to invest in them? Because there's just going to be problems there. Agreed. No, that's very valid. Uh, while you're, uh, you're kind of making your way through this due diligence now and you're learning a lot more about the entrepreneur, uh, you mentioned this earlier that you won't go alone in investing. Will you lead around to kind of help move this forward and find the right investors? Help move it forward, yes. Um, that what that looks like again depends on on the deal. In some cases, that that's that that will happen more in, in maybe in, in companies I've already invested in, where I can help move it forward by you know sharing my experiences with it. In other cases, you know, I mean, I've. I've led rounds that turned out to not be rounds, right? Because I, I would be the lead investor in something. And part, part, of, part of my role was to say, we're not doing this deal because we found this or that or, or assessing interest. So different people um, in, in the angel groups uh, have are more natural at, at that sometimes. And sometimes it's the biggest uh, checkbook that takes the lead. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes that person isn't necessarily the best person to drive the lead. They're just there to write a check. Uh, it really depends on the situation and the group of people you're you're interacting with. So I don't object to having to lead around, but I don't necessarily need to. I don't feel that if, if, if there's someone else who, who has skills, especially if they have skills back to the topic of weaknesses, if they have skills that I don't have, that might be more applicable to this uh, entrepreneur in this, in this uh, deal, then by all means, jump in and, and lead. No, that's great. And interesting that you say that um, in, the la in a deal that we're working on right now, I've never, uh, I've never, well, I guess in a way we lead the deals that we're in because we're structuring the startup to be ready for the investment. Uh, once everybody else jumps in, if someone's coming in with a higher dollar, awesome. But we're leading it in the sense that we're going to invest. So yeah. we're lining it up properly for everybody. We've got all of the paperwork, due diligence, all that good stuff. But it's interesting in this last one, uh, and this is, comes through all of these different interviews that I've been doing. I've actually been matching up. I'm like, okay, this industry, this option has come up, this business, I really like it. And I'm trying to close on them. So I've actually started to reach out to people that actually have an interest in this space and said, hey, look, here's a way we can do this. You can come in through here. We'll go in and do it this way. That way they win, they get the launch. They've got 18 months of runway. Everybody's happy. Where I've never done that before because everybody just pulled in and you got to work with everybody who's there. In this case, everybody's not pulling in as fast. So now I'm trying to pull different uh, levers, I guess, to uh, get those people that are really honed into that type of industry and bring them in. And I'm finding actually that it's uh, a lot easier. So because I know that this is a, a focus for you, man, it's so easy to call you up and say, hey, man, I got this really good company that does this. They look at you like, yeah, love it, I'm in. And that was so much easier than trying to buckshot spray and hurdle everybody in and try to go through the funnel. So yeah. uh, very valid point for sure. So now you've gone through this, you've got people lined up, everything's good. Do you have any preferred terms? Terms I would prefer under ideal circumstances are, are, would be comments. I, I'm happy to have, I'm happy to go alongside the, the entrepreneur. 
unfortunately, given some of the market conditions, and again, having learned the hard way, sometimes you have to have certain protections. So sometimes it could be a it could be in the form of a convertible where you technically stand in front of the folks and there's some time sensitivity to it, right? So I'm going to keep earning interest or if, you know, which I'm not going to collect as interest. I'm hoping to collect it in whatever discount I get later because if if you're not doing well, I'm not, I'm going to lose my money. And if you are doing well, I have the advantage of you're going to, you, you want to do well more quickly as the entrepreneur. So uh, things that have a time component like that can be helpful for an investor. Um, be, not, not because again, we think we're going to get our money back in a loan situation, but because it puts the pressure on the entrepreneur to get their act together, right? You've promised us all these things. If you don't do them the way you said you were going to do them, that's great. I'll own more of the company when we're done, right? So, so I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of pressure there. Uh, other terms that I have seen that I like, um, I, I don't like prep shares per se because uh, the cap table gets complicated enough later on when people come in, but I have found that uh, things that allow me, you know, basically a free upgrade to whatever the next round is, can be attractive to a lot of angels, because that way I don't have to worry about negotiating in grotesque detail um, right now. Okay, so it's, it's not it's not like a safe, but it's it 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 it's, it it is safer for me as an investor to to know that I'm not going to get totally hammered by some VC when you're desperate for money, you've kind of gone out, you've had, you know, you have control of the board, you have control of everything, and you're just going to hammer, hammer me with terms, and they're going to get multiple time liquidation preferences, and they're going to get all this stuff thrown in their deal, and I'm just going to get crushed, right? And, and, and you know, the management or the entrepreneur, they may get, you know, options magically thrown at them, you know, buddy-buddy style by the VC, and I'm just getting killed as, as, as a, an investor. So, those sorts of things that, that offer me some protection in the next round um, are good. Some of that is in the deal itself. Some of that is in the, the shareholder agreement in the way that that's shaped, right? So that I'm not getting, uh, that I can at least participate in these things as, as they as they happen. But but no, I mean, I, I, I've invested in various kinds of deals. I have some where I have prep shares. I have some where it's convertible dementia. I've had some that are straight comments. And you're pretty much uh, even keel with all of them as long as there's a value for you in the next round and you're also able to make sure you're not being backseated per se to a VC that comes in. So you're making sure your rights are still maintained in that uh, shareholders agreement or in the uh, equity that you're getting if it's prep shares or if it's convertible note, whatever that might be. Yeah. And I mean, I don't object when a VC maybe has a non-participating pref where if things go badly, they get out first, but you know, and, I, and I'm probably going to lose anyway, but, but if they, if they win, I object to the, they get the first two or three cuts at it before I see anything right now. Now I've taken all the risk at the low end and I'm not getting anything at the high end because the really high end is, is probably not going to happen. Just probabilistically, um, they, the VCs will sell you that and they'll sell you that by, I don't want to be anti-VC, but, but yeah. they, they have their job to do and they, but they, but they know all the, 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 you know, knobs and dials to turn, um, to get you to do what they want you to do. They do this all the time. Um, and they know how to manipulate is maybe a harsh word, but, but work the entrepreneur so that they to define it what the entrepreneur wants. If the entrepreneur wants a magic number, that's, you know, a hundred million valuation or 200, they can make that happen. They'll, they'll get it somewhere else um, in a way that's probably going to hurt the early investors, but uh, they can make whatever they want happen just by uh, twirling knobs in, in the deal. Um, so that, 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 that goes back to why I want some of the protections. And, and I think some of the, it, it, particularly from some of the U.S. guys who come in may have their own way of doing things. And as Canadian investors, we want to make sure that you know, we're not just being used as first capital and 
not getting to participate when, when things go well. Yeah. Exactly, and then losing the value. Yeah. I, do you take out? Uh, do you look at taking a board seat at all? Um, in some cases, yes. Not necessarily me personally. Again, back to the to the situation of who is who among the investors makes the most sense, right? And again, sometimes it will be the person with the most money who will make that rule and will decide. Well, they want to be on the board. In other cases, it, it, it really is a conversation among the investors to say, who is the best person for this board? What, what is the hole that they need? What is the governance need that they have? And let's make sure that that person with that set of skills is on there. And that, that person may change over time. It, it often doesn't. It, it, you know, we're, we're not necessarily as good at that as we should be as far as swapping out um, investor reps on the board. But definitely, um, it has to be a consideration. Um, and. Uh, this really goes back to the due diligence stuff and, and to the, some of the shareholder stuff and the governance stuff. Sometimes early entre entrepreneurs of early stage companies aren't interested in uh, hearing about a board. They don't want to hear about that. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. The whole reason that they got into a company is so that they could have their own way and do whatever they wanted. Well, that's not connected to reality. The minute you take money, there's going to be other voices that you, you need to hear. And again, back to the humility and understanding what your weaknesses are, you'd be a fool not to take some of the advice of some of the people in a board context, right? Sometimes it's helpful just to have a different set of people looking at your problems from a slightly different perspective of, of the company. And if it's all insider board members and the board is just the three or two or three founders or whatever, um, that usually is not a good board. That's they're, they're, You're too invested in the day-to-day -day stuff to really be able to, to make the kind of decisions and to see alternatives that, that uh, an investor uh, board member might, might see. No, I agree. You certainly do need to make sure you have outside perspective. And, and once you start to grow and you get into that, uh, maybe a half million or a million dollars of ARR, you probably want to make sure that your board's increasing, that you've got more than three people that are not internal, all internal. Uh, so maybe getting up to that five. Uh, one of the things that we always say is that if we're on your board at the early onset, that within two years, we should be off your board because you should be looking at bringing in people that are fitting in the space and fitting in the revenue side of things of where you're hitting because those targets continue to grow and we're there to get you to that 2 million ARR. And then after that, you know, we should be moving out and you should bring in someone that's there to get you to 10 million. Uh, those are the, the different things that um, entrepreneurs need to realize that it's not bringing a board on that's going to be there forever. You want change. You want someone to come in with a different perspective. So uh, that's, uh, that's great. And is there, you know, based on the way that the markets have been shifting to date, is there anything that you've been really heavily focused on and think that uh, entrepreneurs can look at going forward? Or is it kind of business as usual, keep building where you're in? Uh, or is there a hotspot that you think is uh, the, next, uh, uh, the next thing to look at? For some people to, to shift around too quickly and say, oh, we're going to change our entire focus to working from home because that's a thing now. Well, it may, it's a thing now. It may not be a thing in three months. So some, again, back to the chasing, chasing your tail thing. I don't, I don't like that as an investor. If it's too hot, I'm not interested, right? And, and, and if it's too much of a case of you're just trying to make yourself marketable by turning yourself into some the, the next big thing, that may not be a, a great uh plan and, and for some types of businesses it, it that would make no sense anyway just because of the nature of their product uh you, you what you really need to do right now i think is to come up with a plan that's going to get you there with less money or, or, or shorter like smaller amounts of money because the i, I would say the, the climate is probably not the greatest for the next 
few months at least. A lot of people will be sitting on their hands. I've had probably the biggest year I've had, but that's one investment in an existing company, right? And at, and at that point, once that's done, I mean, which it is, uh, my uh, capacity for new deals this year is probably very low. And my interest is very low because, again, I know there's going to be a lot of companies coming that are too interested in getting money because they're desperate, right? They're, they're really at, they're at the end. Um, and, you know, you, you want to be careful about getting in those situations. The, the other thing I'd say is understanding that just as the stock market is a market, the, the startup market is a market, okay? And, and you just because you think you could have got, you know, this valuation six months ago or a year ago because you heard somebody say something and all companies with this much ARR are not worth this much money, that you're really looking for trouble when you go down that road because the market is changed for everything. And, and the, the the bottom can fall out of the startup market in times like this because the super high risk investment becomes somewhat unattractive just by comparison to the fact that I could go out to the public stock market and buy other more established companies at a discount to what they were. So you have to understand that, and that that's going to hit this market worse than um, than, than the, the public stock market. So if the public stock market is going back to this, this is like the tip of the iceberg thing. And, all this other investment money is, is coming in underneath it, suddenly you become a lot less interested. You're, you're the marginal dollar for a lot of investors. Because uh, again, yes, I'm an angel investor, but I'm also an, an investor investor. Um, I'm not gonna put all my capital into startups. I'd be crazy. Um, so th that element of the market is, is gonna be a challenge for people and the, just the liquidity aspect, right? So a lot of angel investors, simply from the perspective of liquidity, are going to say, "Do I, you know, they're going to look at their investments now and say, okay, I got caught in a bit of a, a trap here. I don't want to be putting all, committing all my money to something that I'm not going to see that money again for 5, 10, 15 years in some cases, right? I mean, people don't understand how long some of these cycles are for these companies. So those things are really going to, are going to make it harder to raise money for the next little while, I suspect. Um, so you need to have a plan that maybe gets you smaller chunks of money, okay? Because it could be partly because that may be the only money, money available, but also because you're going to have to take a haircut on your valuation in some cases. You're going to have to accept some terms you don't want to accept. So be prepared to do, do to do that with a lower ask is probably better for you in the long term, right? You may have you may have to grab in a couple chunks over the next couple of years and to be able to adapt as market conditions change. We could get into the fall and things could be all wonderful again. Uh, the pandemic is pretty much over and everything's kind of back to normal and we have a V-shaped recovery and people are free with their wallets again. That could be the case, right? And, and in fact, in that case, tech companies might be interesting because again, tech companies have held up pretty well through this, through this period. Or it could be a different scenario. Um, none of us knows, okay, the governments that are, are now spending money like crazy are going to have to uh, find money to pay for that stuff at some point in the next year or two. And I know that a lot of angel investors and people in those situations are going to be very concerned about some of the decisions that they're going to be making um, that are probably going to be, um, again, politically popular for them, but they're going to hit the very people that are going to be providing the seed capital. Uh, and again, not to get too uh, hooked up on the politics of it, but I mean, as an investor, if I've invested money over the past five, 10 years on, on a number of these companies. If finally one of them uh, turns out really well, and in the meantime, the government has radically changed the tax regime, for instance, all that gain that I thought I was getting, a good chunk of it will, will evaporate. And then, then that's going to put people like me uh, and angel investors in general in a bad mood for for taking those kind of long-term investments. What is the point of taking those risks if the government is going to mess around like that? So none of that has happened yet, but there's going to be some trepidation 
for committing a lot of new capital until some of that stuff is clarified, which may not happen for another six months to a year. Uh, so as people may not be willing to make as large bets as they have been. So you've got to, you know, again, you need to adapt your plan to, to recognize that money may be dry for a while. And that may, that may impact your expansion plans for your company. It may be your launch plans, you know, the, the locales you go into. Um, and, and also, again, the size uh, and the nature of the asks that you're going to, that you're going to be making over the next little bit. So you really do need to sharpen your pencil. Look at this as that we're going into a, a recession, pull back a little bit on your ask, figure out how you can get yourself to go the next six to eight months and then figure out from there how you get to the next six to eight months, but do it in small increments, uh, build in the cash that's going to help you float and grow, but looking at different verticals, looking at different areas that you can get investors to come in from, but also where you can get sales from to keep you the sustainability of your business. So uh, that's, um, that's valuable. So to kind of end up and, and um, the last, our last kind of question that we're going to throw at you right now is looking into your crystal ball, because I'm going to come back in a couple of years and uh, we're going to have another interview to see if you uh, were able to hit the crystal ball moment. But where do you see the markets going in early stage investing in the next 12 months? And then where do you see us in the next three years? Uh, I know we've talked about the high in the sky, you know, where can we go? Where's the sector? And you, you, you alluded to earlier that you don't want to get into things that are hot and flashy right now, but are those hot and flashy things going to be where we're going to be in the next three years? Are they going to tape, uh, taper into something big? And I'm kind of just looking for your kind of 12 month uh, thoughts and then the three years. Sure. The, the, the next 12 months, as I've indicated, might be a little challenging. Um, I, I really think there could be, and some of this has been happening for the last few years. Okay, so it's not simply, this is just brought it forward and focused it. So, I mean, you found in the last few years, companies that have been going down looking for VC money have needed larger revenues before they were getting it. So money was starting to get a little tighter over the past few years anyway. Okay, and this is just basically, you know, again, wiped a lot of it off the plate because, because hey, a lot of people have lost a lot of their wealth or what they perceive to have been their wealth on, on paper. Um, so they're, they're just not going to be willing to make those those investments. So I, I would be fairly cautious over the next 12 months. Again, if, 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 if we do get a V-shaped recovery, you may see towards the end of that 12 months, things get back somewhat to normal and maybe a little bit of pent up demand. But but again, unless people have, unless the markets have gone up and people have the capital to invest, the, the, the pent up demand idea is not really going to be there. It's not like I need to buy two companies now instead of making one investment. That, that's not how that's going to work. In three years, I, I, I don't see there being um, a problem with uh, the market. I think that, you know, three to five years from now, long term, this, this, this is still a, a good way to invest and it's a good, it's a good thing to do. We, we need startups. If we don't have them, the, the next wave of companies won't be there. And as we look at, you know, revolutionary technological changes and um, the need for greater productivity, which is really suffering across the economy um, in general, right? I mean, the, these, these sorts of areas are going to be of interest. Yes, you'll get some weird verticals that you didn't think of that you know, may jump up out of nowhere. You'll get other verticals, you know, we, we're on Zoom right now. We don't need 50 Zooms. Like we did going in now and saying, I'm gonna switch my model to be like a, like a Zoom. Well, we don't need that. We already have that. So you, 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 jumping into it uh, to a hot area, it can be very dangerous because it's so hot that I, now I don't believe that you're actually gonna make it, right? Because there's, there's gonna be so many other competitors for you. So I, 
again, I, I'm, I'm the wrong person to give you a good answer on that because, again, I'm, I'm not the one who's too interested in any particular murder and getting into the hot market. I, I tend to avoid that because I don't really know what they'll be. Again, using the, the past examples of driverless cars, five years ago, we were told by 2020, we're all going to be driving driverless cars. Well, that was obviously insane at the time, but you know, it, it looks even more insane now. But we don't even have driverless buses, but never, you know, and subway trains in some cases, never mind, you know, driverless cars. Doesn't mean those technologies aren't awesome and that there aren't some sectors within there that will you build technology that will go into whole other areas, but that's how it tends to happen, right? You're working on some specific problem and are able to adapt that technology into something that may be completely different than the vertical you thought it was going to be valuable for. But broadly speaking, in the long term, yes, this is still going to be an area you're going to want to be in. It's just for the next 12 to 18 months, I would suspect, money may be a little bit harder to uh, to get, and you're going to have to accept lower valuations. That's that's how that works. I guess there's going to be that the strong will survive, and you'll have to find ways to make sure you're generating revenue and using that revenue to support your business as you grow. So uh, there'll be, a, a, a sure, a lot of industry shifts and changes, a lot of uh, companies going under, and then there's going to be a lot of new companies that are going to sprout out from it because they're going to find the strength in the misses that occurred and clean that up a little bit better. So you're right, there's going to be a, a lot of change and maybe everything will be uh, driverless in the next five years. But I think that uh, just like weed and everything else, they came in with this highly aggressive number that everybody was going to do X and the outcome was maybe only 2% of people did X. But I think that's the whole purpose of hyping a market and trying to generate as much value out of something that doesn't exist. And you just have to be aware of that so that you don't get pulled into the wrong direction and find something that really does solve a problem. Uh, and that's an industry that's gonna last forever is that if you can find a way to be profitable every year, you're gonna grow and you're gonna be sustainable. So I, I wanna thank you, John, very much for all of your insights today. Uh, as I do show lots of notes, I'm uh, a big fan. And uh, thank you again for, for everything that you shared. Uh, we will be putting something to the, together over, I said, over the next uh, four to six weeks. We'll let you know when we do put that out. But I appreciate all the insights, information, and sharing. Uh, you've got a lot of great stuff there. And uh, once again, thank you very much for that. You're very welcome.